This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. Dr David Tamperd. Hello, David. How's your week been? Very good. Thank you, Dave. Great yeah. to have you here. And Danny Bowles is with us. Danny. Good afternoon, Dave. Nice to see you Thank too. You. What are we talking about leading off today, David? Um, well, I was, I'm going to talk about uh, breeding, breeding your dog, just from a general point of view. And, uh, you know, we, we often, as vets, always talk about um, desexing your pet, and I will still always advocate that that's the best position. Pet dogs uh, do better when they're desexed from a health and behaviour point of view. Okay, but if you decide that you're going to breed with your pet, with your dog usually, um, then there's a few things that you need to be aware of. Sometimes we talk about the, the strength, the genetic strength of crossbreds versus purebreds, and Danny might chip in on this, but we have, I think, a, um, a genetic base of all these different breeds, and they have diversity in them, and that's good, and we need to maintain that. Uh, but also we see breeds coming together and producing crossbreds. Now, the interesting thing is that in the marketplace, a lot of these crossbred dogs are actually uh, getting uh, better value, if you like, or cost more anyway, to the owner um, than what the purebred parents do. Mm. So I'm thinking of things like the Labradoodle and the Cavoodles and all of those sort of... Anything that sounds like it's a mix of two breeds, it is a mix of two breeds. Can you have some problems, however, when you do mix up two breeds from the, the possibly the worst of either breed that's mixed in there? Yeah, you can, although we do tend to see that... Um, that a lot of the genetics mean that problems are what we call recessive genes, which means they only appear when you've actually got both the mother and the father have got one of those genes, and so then there's a chance that the offspring will put them together and then they'll produce the problem. If you take two different breeds, it's unlikely that you'll have similar problems of a recessive nature coming together in your puppies. So that's where we get what we call hybrid vigour. This is where a crossbreed produces a slightly stronger dog in terms of its overall health. But having said that, we do um, the the differences are fairly mild and minor when we're talking about pet dogs. But um, one of the things to ensure is that your dog is fully vaccinated, and this is particularly important for the bitch, for the female, because the immunity that she has then passes on to the puppies. Initially, there is a small amount gets transferred through the placenta, but primarily it's through the milk, through the colostrum. So we do know that that's important. And uh, there's, you know, all these different strategies with vaccinations and so on. I would always recommend that people speak to their veterinarian about um, making sure that their dog that they're going to breed with is fully vaccinated. Um, all the usual things like heartworm prevention and worming does need to be followed up. Uh, heartworm, not so much of a risk to the puppies, but it can, if your dog is infected, uh, your female dog is infected and it gets pregnant, that can really cause problems uh, for her because her blood supply to her lungs and everything is going to be bothered. But worming, generally intestinal worming, can transmit through the placenta and through the milk to the puppies. So then they're actually born with worms before they even start. That's not a good way to mm. start life. So... Make sure that they're on a, a, a fairly um, strict worming protocol. Again, speaking to your vet healthcare team about um, what's appropriate for that and using medications that are safe in pregnancy. So they're two of the simple things that we do. There are some specific things, however, for different breeds. So we do know that um, we have breed screening uh, protocols for things like eye disease, elbow disease, uh, haemophilia, 
in German Shepherds, um, von Willebrand's disease in uh, Dobermans, um, hip dysplasia is a big one, of course, that we, we know that uh, things like Rottweilers and Shepherds and Labradors can be tested, and under the breed regulations they should be. So there are uh, some of the things that can be looked at prior to going ahead with a breeding program. And there's two things that come out of that. One is you've got a healthy dog to start with, so you're not going to run into problems. And two is you will know that from the pairing of the mother and the father that uh, you've got an X amount of chance of having those problems showing up in the in the puppies. And so we want to select, you know, a, a dog that's got a low risk of, say, hip dysplasia and the bitch having a low risk so that that means that the puppies are more likely to be um, healthy otherwise. Sometimes people compromise a little bit, like they'll go, oh, we'll go with a... We really like some of the things about this dog, so we'll go with a slightly higher hip score, for instance. Mm -hmm. But then you want to make sure that the bitch has a really lower hip score to decrease the problems. And I think where we've seen breeds get out of control is when some of those basic rules have been forgotten in in the sort of under the guise of just simply going, well, let's go for the best-looking dog. And 20 years down the track we get problems with breeds. And so that's why some of these crossbreeds end up becoming much more popular because they don't have those other problems. Mm, mm. So health is always... Uh, make sure that your dog is probably around about... I wouldn't breed anything under 18 months of age. Um, your dog has not grown fully until it's at least 15 months of age. And if you have a bitch and you breed with it, it will stunt its growth because it puts the energy into the puppies and not into its growth. And I think... Um, and I might get uh, held down by the breeders out there, but I think anything over the age of six, um, from a genetic point of view, it'd be hard to justify breeding that dog because really if you haven't already produced a better progeny from that dog by the age of six, then you're sort of going backwards with the genetics. So you want to keep advancing the breed, and this is, this is where people who put the time and effort into breeding and they want to produce really good pups... You know, they end up, they, they look for the successful puppies. They take them into the show ring, they have them tested, and then they become the next generation. And that's how we get the breeds improving and advancing. There's my sermon. Okay. <laughs> and uh, have we got a special guest interview today, please? Oh, I, 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 oh, I really, I'm lost for words now, yeah, David. Yeah. But now I appreciate the, what uh, Dave's talking about because... Um, it is important, and I agree with a lot what, with what you're saying. And I do feel uh, can't stress enough the importance of making sure that um, the the bitch is vaccinated before she has puppies and mm. so forth. Mm. It's very important because you don't want them getting a virus, something like even parvovirus, where you're going to lose half the litter straight away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep. and they're just not strong enough to survive through mm. it. So very important. I think it's a good topic. Dave, we've got Brad Moore, who's the president of the Crowdus Bay Puppy Playgroup. I don't know if you've heard of them, Crowdus Bay Puppy Playgroup. And he's asking councils to reconsider ta taking out the dog tidy dispensers, which are found at many, many doggy parks. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Brad. That's all right. Thanks for having us. Brad, um, look, uh, you've got a Labrador that's called JD. Is it Labrador? That's right, yeah. Labrador. Yes. He's the alpha male of the, of the pack. Alpha male. And, like, his name is JD, and, and in Newcastle there's a, a famous magician called JD, and he's internationally known. Um, did you, can, can this lab of yours, can JD do tricks, magic tricks? Oh, look, mate, he's, he's, he's a very clever boy. In fact, he's, 
he he could be reincarnated. He's a he's he's not a dog. He's a person. He can do all sorts of things. <laughs> Great, mate. What uh, what we're going to talk about today is an issue that you raised on NBN last night, and that's the fact that. Um, Councils are now starting to think about the cost of the dog tidy dispensers that are found in, in parks, doggy parks, the leash-free park areas, mm. and, and taking them out. Um, mm. Can you give us some information on this? Well, look, according to the council there last night, they've, they've sort of quoted figures of about $20,000 a year mm. for their 20, about 21 dispensers around the council's areas, um, which for our park at Crowdus Bay here on the beautiful lake, and, and it is beautiful and we do love our park, but it's a big park and we've only actually got one dispenser. Yes. Um, but I mean, there's 21 throughout the area and uh, that seems to be an awful awful lot of money. Um, I'm, we've had sort of a bit of a quick talk through the members this morning and we, we reckon we could we could do it for council for a lot cheaper than that, just with our volunteer workers. Um we're, we're, we're a, uh, a non-profit uh, group of people, and we, we raise money for for charities. But gosh, if the council is costing them twenty thousand, I reckon we could do it for ten or twelve thousand easy. So uh, yes, I might put that to council. But we need to have the bags there because it's you know in the perfect world the responsible dog owners will pick up, or responsible people will pick up their mess. But that's it. That's that's not the world we live in, and, and we know ourselves down the park. I mean, uh, I, nearly every day I go down there, I, I pick up what JD leaves behind, but uh, I also pick up, you know, three, four or five other other heaps that uh, these uh, irresponsible people uh, leave behind, so... That is a shame. That is a shame when that when that happens because we do need to be responsible with our pets, and to be able to pick up after them. But it is um, even more of a shame, I guess, to lose these dispensers because it would most probably encourage that sort of behaviour. Well, it, it can only it can only help. We did uh, ask council there last year if we could actually have four more dispensers distributed through the park, you know, in the middle and at the other end and car park uh, where people arrive, just to make it easier. I mean, if it's right there in front of people, they're, hopefully they're, they're going to use the bags um, and, uh, you know, reduce the problem because uh, it, our park, Crowders Bay, is, is very popular, not so much wintertime, be cold and wet, but uh, through the summer months, my gosh, there's a lot of people use the park and... We're talking mothers with kids, um, people with, with you know picnics and and all sorts of all sorts of groups using the park, and uh, it's very unpleasant if you sort of get uh, a bit of poo squash between your toes, but, uh, you know you had nothing to do with. Um, yeah, so we, we we sort of we'd like to uh, negotiate or come up with a better idea, but. We, we raise money for charity. Yes. It's a bit difficult for us to sort of pay for things ourselves, but we can look at other options and maybe we can get stuff donated to us that we can we can do. But but as you say, you've got the volunteers there that are happy to maintain them and, and help out, and this therefore can reduce the costs for councils. Oh, sure. Well, I've made overtures to council before. Um, because I know, I know oh, they've got a lot to look after, and that's fine. They've, they've got to spend money, but... Um, you know, in the same breath too, we, 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 the, the, the public that pays the rates, and, and, and uh, if they're a bit hard up on services, like with the rangers now, they're, they're, they're hard up there. Well, I even suggested one stage there. Well, 
what about volunteer rangers or or park wardens? We've mm-hmm. got a lot of retirees that would be, you know, quite happy to uh, be an honorary ranger and, and help out in patrol areas. Um, the poo bags, well, sure, we could, uh, you know, we could go around to all the parks once a fortnight and fill up the dispensers and uh, quite happily. And any money that we got, well, great, we can give that to our favourite charities, which are the guide dogs, um, Hunter Animal Rescue, RSPCA, um, Delta Dogs too, possibly, if we can raise enough money. It's, yeah. With You mentioned to me about the guide dogs. Um, you are doing a fundraising effort and a guide dog tour uh, in the near future. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good point. Um, we're uh, August. Um, the guide dogs are having a special open day down there. It's a popular bus trip. Generally, but and this is in Sydney, the open day? Well, actually, it's at their training centre, which is out Richmond Way. Right. Um, Wiseman's Ferry, Richmond. I haven't been down there for years, but they've got a world-class training centre and breeding centre there. And we're having a, a, a bus trip down, uh, $39 for adults, 26 for children. And uh, the money we raise will uh, will go to the guide dogs uh, and to help them you know, train more, more dogs. But it's a, it's a nice day out, and it's a really good centre. It's interesting. And sure, everybody will see the puppies, and uh, yeah, we do that. We try and raise money every year. We, oh, a bit over a thousand dollars last year. This year, yep. we might be able to raise a couple of thousand if all things go well. And Brad, if people want to get in contact with and join the Crowder's Bay Puppy Club group, um, they can find you on Facebook. So that's Crowder's Bay Puppy Play Group, Play group I should say. Right. Uh, yep. It's important to get the right wording. But I have also left your phone number with the front desk here at the studio. So if uh, people want to phone up and speak to uh, the front desk or receptionist studio, they can give out your phone number too. So yep. but it's a very good cause, um, what you are doing. And I hope that you can get somewhere with that. And that, you know, as residents and quite a lot of the population has got uh, dogs, that yep. we don't lose these dog tidy bins. Well, no, that's right. And, I mean, it's, it, and, but it goes further too. I mean, okay, there's, there's, there's dog poo and all that, but, you know, uh, if there's not bins there for people to use, well, you know, what do they do with the rubbish? People mm. don't take their rubbish home with them. They leave them, they leave them in the park or leave them yes. behind. So it's a litter as well as a, a, a doggy poo problem as well. Yes. So, uh, and any, any resolution or alternative we can come up with would, would all be good. Thank um, you for your time, Brad. The only other thing I'd say, if anybody's looking for us, we're down the park seven yes. days a week between 8 and 10. That's, that is good. And I think it's a great thing to be able to get together and enjoy the pets at a nice leash-free area. Oh, and it's a beautiful park. Sometimes we see dolphins and the dogs have fun. The people, it's good therapy for the people as well. Yes. And, uh, it's just sort of makes us appreciate uh, our bit of paradise in this part of the world. Well, thank you for your time, Brad. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay, bye. Our number is 49216216 if you'd like to give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, and you'll be able to get through and talk to our vet, Dr. David Tabret. He's waiting on your calls right now. There's a free line there. If you're thinking about getting through to us, go to the phones right now, 49216216. Just as someone who has from Ashtonfield, Richard, how's your day going? Not too badly, thanks, and how's yours? Feeling great. You've got some chooks? I have. I've got some Americanas. Very good. What would you like to talk to David about then? Um, I've got a... Uh a bird had just come out of the malt and she's as a the malt this sort of like autumn early winter they don't normally come back to laying eggs as early as this but mm-hmm. I've got one that's laying eggs without shells oh okay should be easily fixed um, usually it just comes down to uh, supplementing calcium 
Um, it's very, very important. The amount of calcium that they put into the eggs, um, if we don't make sure they're getting enough, they will start to strip it out of their bones. Yep. And so they can then lead to um, problems with the joints and they can get fractures and all sorts of things. So um, there are a ver- variety of calcium sources that you can use. Um, often a lot of vegetables and so on have calcium in them, but most people in those circumstances will supplement uh, with a calcium, either ground-up oyster shell um, or there's various powdered forms. Uh, You can get liquid forms, which uh, you can add to the water, and that that can often be helpful as well. So there's a number of different ways it can be done. Um, Always a good idea to probably make sure they're getting green leafy vegetables as well. Yep. Because that's a natural source, but then adding in um, a calcium supplement, absolutely. They've got 24-hour access to shell grit. I've always had chooks, and I've always had a bowl of shell grit. With yeah, you know, yep. you'd be surprised how much they, they consume. Yep. And, a, and it's the same chook that last year occasionally laid the egg with a soft shell, but this as it's come out of the malt. She may have a dysfunctional um, shell gland um, as the egg passes along the oviduct. Uh, it goes through various layers, and the um, so it's uh, when they ovulate is the yolk, and then the albumin gets laid down in various layers, and then there's a membrane goes on, and then the shell gland, which is right at the end, starts to put the calcium on. And if they're passing through too quickly or that's not working properly, they can lay soft eggs. Right. Um, in that case, I would say if you're supplying um, shell grit, I would supplement with an organic liquid calcium. Yeah, I was right. just going to add that one way to find out whether there is a problem with that gland is just get some liquid calcium. It's absorbed fairly readily and easily to, to, to the, the chook, and you'll be able to find out what the problem is. If that's not working, then there is a, a greater yeah, problem. Yeah, so if she doesn't respond to a liquid organic calcium, yep. then the problem's in her. Mm. I, I can get that at the uh, the normal vets, or is it a... Usually you'd get it at good pet stores. Um, okay. It's not, some vets will carry it, Yep. but... Um, most of the pet and produce stores should have it, but and you need to get the liquid organic form. Yeah, no, it'll be available in a small bottle, 250ml, and in one litre bottles as well. Yeah, if, yeah. You, if you go in and just say, um, you know, I've got a chook and it's laying soft eggs, yep. they'll, you'll um, be handed the powdered or the uh, shell grit, but you've actually already done that, so you need to get the liquid form. All right. Okay. I well, thank you very much. Hello, Karen. How are you today? Oh, good. How are you? Not too bad. What's going on? You've got a little puppy. Yes. Tell us about the puppy. What breed? Uh, well, she's a, apparently a, a terrier cross, um, perhaps a little bit of dingo in her. <laughs> okay, Karen, what's happening with your little one? Um, okay, she's had one lot of um, heartworming. She's nine months. Yep. And um, I'm just wondering, she's had the one needle at the vet. Yeah. Um, she's due for more heartworm. Yep. Now, um, instead of uh, a vaccination, can she go on tablets? Um. So what we've got available for heartworm prevention, just a little bit of back history for people, is we used to use a daily tablet. Um, DEC was the drug. And um, the problem was that if you missed a day, then your dog was prone to getting heartworm. That was how fragile the sort of relationship was. And then we moved and we had some monthly tablets available. Mm-hmm. And now we've got a, there's a monthly spot on that you put on the back of the neck. And then we've now got a yearly injection. But uh, at that age, as puppies, they usually need to have a second one, like you said, at about this time because their body weight is changing so rapidly. I see. And it's dose per body weight. So um, 
I think it's really up to you what you want to do because a lot of people do like to try and tie in their, their regular intestinal worming, their heartworm and their flea control all into one thing and it's done once a month uh, and that works fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, most of those products that are available in that realm, they do not do tapeworm, however, um, and the most common tapeworm that we see is um, a worm called dipalidium, which is spread by fleas. So theoretically, if you've got good flea control, you shouldn't have a problem with that one. But as far as heartworm goes, if you go with a monthly one, that's fine. If you go with a yearly one, the important thing is that you just make sure that it's done you know, on, on a monthly basis or an annual basis as necessary. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's really up to you and what fits. If you're already doing monthly treatments for things like fleas and worming anyway... Yes. Yeah. Then and you want to just wrap that up and have the heartworm going into that. Okay. Then you can do that. Oh, okay, that sounds good. No drama, and you just have to. Well, the timing of them always is a question. When do you start them in relation to the previous doses? Yes. I th- look, there's no toxicity issue with switching those drugs like that. So I would just start, um, you know, onto your monthly pre- all-in-one preventative straight away. Straight away. Yep. Oh, that's good. Thank all right. you. And um, can I ask another question about um, bones? Yes. Yep. Um, we've been giving her, and we have another little terrier, um, Maltese, um, lamb bones, but they're raw and they're not cooked. Yes. Then after a while, they go like brittle. All right. Um, how long? When you say after a while? Well, I mean, you know, they could be lying around for a couple of weeks. Okay. All and right. The little one is chewing, and they seem to be breaking off into sharp little pieces. Yep. I'll give you the. I'll give you my my tips on feeding bones for safety. Mm. Always raw, never yes. never cut, and the bone becomes the meal for the day, and you pick it up, and it goes in the bin at the end of the day. Oh, I wondered that. Okay, and what yeah. is what often happens? A lot of people say is the dog will bury the bone, um, which is theoretically is one of those primitive things that dogs do they bury the bone so that it will tenderize for a few days and then they can get it out but the problem with our dogs is that we feed them and so in between they forget that they needed that bone and about a week later they go oh that's right i've got a bone down there they go and dig it up it's now got salmonella and everything on it and then they get a tummy upset or yes, that's what she was doing, like stretching, like she's had pains in the in the belly. Yep. Or that, as you said, uh, they become brittle because the sun actually cooks the protein in the bone structure, uh, and so then the the structure of it changes and it becomes more of a, well, yeah, hard white bone that can crack, and so that causes problems. So, uh, feed a bone, that's fine, and it should be a whole bone, not a cut bone. Should be raw, and it becomes the one meal for the day, and then pick it up at the end of the day. Great. All right. Yeah, and if she's if she's like uh, stretching, and, and it's obvious she's got had like some on and off um, pain in the belly. Yep. Do you think that would be because of like little sharp pieces, perhaps, or or some other problem? Um, yeah, it can be. That sort of stretching just indicates abdominal pain in the front of the abdomen. We see that with dogs that have eaten. Uh, bony fragments and things like that, but we also see it with other problems like pancreatitis. If it's something that's persisting, um, and if it's a, certainly if it's associated with other signs like vomiting, um, diarrhea, and they're gone off their food, then you really need to get them to a vet. So, um, yeah, just keep an eye out for those sort of signs in the meantime. All right. All right. Thank you very much for that, Karen. Great to have you call. We're going to Singleton right now. Errol's been waiting patiently. Errol, are you getting a bit of rain up there? No, not at the moment. No. It's nice and sunny. 
Oh, well, there you go. Now, you're giving us a call. You've got an interesting one with a puppy. Tell us about your puppy. Yeah, he's a little six-month-old um, black and tan Kelpie, and his adult canines have come through, but he's still got his puppy canines. So he's got, firstly, eight teeth in front of his mouth instead of four. Oh, all right. Um, hi, Errol. Now, how, how long have those uh, adult teeth been down for? Well, probably three four weeks, two weeks. Okay. I'd probably give it about another month, and you'll find that the... Uh, the puppy ones should move out and they should fall out. Um, yeah. Sometimes we do see them retained and they can cause a problem because uh, they're loose and uh, food material and so on gets in between the puppy tooth and the adult tooth. They, and don't, seem, they don't seem loose. No, well, we give them a couple of weeks yet. Uh, it can often take about a month or two months for them to move on. Oh, okay. Yeah, they don't always fall out before the adult ones come through. Yeah. So they're, theory, they're supposed to, but, you know, they don't always do that. But I wouldn't panic too much. But if they're there sort of three months down the track, then um, they may need to be removed because they can cause problems. And um, then... It was a little bit to start with because he's off his food. Has he? Yeah. So, so it might be a little bit sore. Down a bit now. Yeah, they, they can cause some tender, you know, tender gums as you like kids getting teeth coming through so most yeah. dogs will actually switch the food to the other side but if it's happening on both sides um, that can slow them down a bit but they usually move on from that pretty quickly and yeah. um, if they do need to be removed they are a little bit technically a little bit difficult to get out because they're such a fragile little tooth and it's very easy to leave some of the root behind so oh, they, they're not like baby teeth where they don't have a root no the canine ones are about a th about in the adult one, it's a third of the tooth is visible. Two-thirds is in the jaw. In the puppies, it's about 50-50. So what you can see, there's about the same amount under the gum as well. Um, but they're a very fragile tooth. So when I've done this in the past and tried to remove them, you've got to be really careful they don't crack. But okay. um, if they're there sort of three months down the track, then they're best to be removed. Yeah, I'll take them to the vet. Yep. yep. All righty. Fantastic. 10 to 1, you're listening to Pet Chat for a Wednesday afternoon. 49216216 if you'd like to talk to our vet, Dr David Tabbert. He's here right now. We're making our way to call it to say hello to Rosemary. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And what's going on with your cat? Well, he's, uh, he's actually a kitten. He's four and a half months old and he's a Selkirk Rex. Have you heard of that variety? Yes, yep, yep. And I've only had him a week, but he's got this... Um, brown exudate coming from his eye. Yes. I suppose it's from his eye or from his tear duct. I don't know which. Yes. It um, goes over his nose and creates a little... A stain on his... Patch under his yep. nostril, you know. Is it only on one eye, Rosemary? Just the one. Yeah. Um, Apparently his mother had the same problem. It's a very common problem in that breed. Um, yeah. And a lot of people use... Um, various remedies the one thing i would caution you about though is just to make sure because it's happening in one eye is that um make sure that the eye has been examined or you get it examined to make sure there's no eyelid disorders yeah. they can get um problems with the eyelids the most common problem we see with cats with eyelid disorders is called a coloboma which is where the actual um eyelids are not formed properly and uh, then we also see uh, sometimes they get slightly rolled in eyelids or they can actually have extra eyelashes. And then further to that, they can get blocked tear ducts. So um, it seems to be... Would it, would it still drain? 
No, and that's what happens is that it spills over onto the face. And now the reason it goes that rusty colour is because there's iron in the tear duct, in the tear um, solution, the tear film. And so when the the iron gets exposed to the air, it oxidises and causes a rust. So that's why we get that discoloration. Um, If there's a tear duct blockage, sometimes they can be unblocked, but some of these guys have got permanent uh, blockages. And so they live with this problem constantly. Um, so that's where we, we people use other methods like to try and keep the skin, the skin clear and things like that. Very often it may just be a visual or an aesthetic problem rather than an actual health problem. But as I said, I would get the, um, get the eyes examined. Excessive. Sorry? It's not excessive. Yeah, it's just there. When it, it does become more obvious as time goes on because the skin often takes on that that rusty colour all the time. So it's worth making sure that we don't have an eyelid disorder because we're such a young kitten. But if it's, uh, you know, if that's all been checked, then it might just be a case of keeping the eyes clear, keeping the face clear just by wiping away. And there is some um, eye uh, tear stain remover solution that you can get. So you'd talk to your vet about that. Our phone number is 49216216 for Pet Chat today. If you'd like to get through, we'd like to hear from you. And you can talk to our vet, Dr. David Tabret. Gail's with us from Tumbiumbi. How's things, Gail? Oh, very good, thank you. What would you like to talk to David about? Uh, well, I thought I'd give him a ring. Um, I just noticed this morning, I've got a young Sussex rooster which I bred last September. And um, just so that I'd know which ones were which and how old they were, I put a plastic leg ring on him. Mm-hmm. And he grew so big that it became very tight. Right. And um, I took it off a couple of weeks ago, but it must have embedded into his skin a little bit. And um, I've noticed this morning that his leg around where the spur has started to grow has is a little bit swollen and there's a bit of a scab there. Right. And I was wondering, you know... Are you sure that you got it all off? Uh, yeah, definitely got the whole ring off. Definitely, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I don't know whether... It, it didn't look like it had done any damage at the time, but it must have embedded in a little bit. In the end of it must have embedded into his um, into his leg, I think. Usually, if you've removed it like a week or two ago, then I would expect that the swelling would be going down. Was there an ulcerated area when you took the, the ring off? It hadn't started. I only just noticed that he, it was starting to get very tight on him. Okay. You know, and yeah, you were able to cut it off, though. Oh, yes, I undid it and took it off, you know. Oh, okay. Yes, I got it off him. Just make sure that there isn't... Sometimes I've seen um, a little bit of cotton or some uh, string can get caught around them, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that can be fairly nasty, and that'll do the same thing, uh, same thing where it can actually um, cut into the skin and cut off circulation but it shouldn't it shouldn't be getting worse having taken the ring off you know two weeks ago well it seemed to be a scab there now which wasn't there before you know so and it's a little bit swollen too so i thought oh it didn't look good and um if you're able to pick him up and get someone to have a very close look and just make sure there's not something else in there like a, a piece of string that's caught around his foot around his leg, and uh, otherwise I would bathe it with some salty water. If you can, can't see anything there, do that for about two days, and if it hasn't improved, then I think you need to get him to the vet. Okay, Gail, good luck with that. Thank you so much for your call. 49216216 is the number. Uh, this is amazing today in the studio. You've brought a dinosaur bone in with you. That's incredible, Denny, isn't it? look at the size of that. How's that? Looks good. What, what, what's that used for? Well, 
Oh, just oh, wait till it's, it's so, so big. It's knocking all these <laughs> books off. The, you've lost everything. It's so big. Oh my god! Okay, that's what, for Dino from the Flintstones. It is, though. isn't it? What I brought this in for is because sometimes we get callers who say, "Look, um, the dog's digging up the yard because it's bored. It's got nothing to do while its owners are away." Well, these bones, because they're so big, they can last a full day's worth of chewing. So while you're away <laughs> for day. eight, That's ten, twelve hours, great, it is. Great day, maybe. Yeah. Irish were found. <laughs> should, we should say it's not a bone. Toothpick no, for an Irish. No. It's a rawhide. Rawhide bone that's but shaped it, like it's a like, bone. It's longer than my arm. It's, it's two feet and up to three feet. You can get them. It's and very that, big and it's And very that's one wide. day. Is that that's the two hour size, is it? <laughs> that's the two hour size. No. There are smaller ones for the smaller dogs. The, uh, the big dog one he's got towing behind his car. But if a dog constantly chewed this, didn't stop, a big dog, let's say a great dane, it's about four, fourteen hours worth of chewing. How good's that? I'm I'm surprised someone measured it actually. <laughs> and and Dave, we we had the caller earlier on about uh, bones that splinter and that have been yep. out in the sun. That would be a limited problem with a rawhide bone, I would think. Be no problem. No problem at all because it's it softens up as they chew it, and so they don't they can't chew up on or digest bigger pieces of mm. bone that'll not sit right in their stomach. So it works really well. The great thing with these is sometimes you do have to be a bit careful when you buy them. Some of the brands out there have, you know, a lot more starch in them. But um, this variety that I've got here, it's 96% rawhide meat. So very limited in the amount of starch that's in them. And if you unwrap it, it's 99%. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon that would be great for Margaret, who's at Singleton, and she's got an 11-year-old Rotty. Your dog would probably like this, I reckon, Margaret. She would absolutely love it. She loves her turkey necks. So I'd say she'd love that as well. She would. She would. I would particularly want to just watch and see how many hours, how many hours it would take to devour it in the end. It's huge. Is it? The trouble is she's not left by herself very often, so, you know, (laughs) but she would love it. But, yeah, I have got a bit of a a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. She's never, ever been a big, big barker, never, Um, but... About two months ago, some people moved in next door and they've got two dogs. One's a quite a big dog and they bark continually some days, all day through the night and she has taken up. Every time they bark, she has turned into a real, real barker. And it's got to the point, you know, we've got to come out the back, we've got to tell her to lay down, be quiet. But some days it nearly it nearly makes us pull our hairs out because she's never, ever been a big barker. But the dog's next door, as I said, continually, and she's taken... Yeah, following sit, and I was just wondering, yeah, we could have some advice or what we could do or... Well, yeah... When she hasn't been a barker. I I understand and I I can appreciate your problems because I live next door to some dogs that bark non-stop. Um, the, The interesting thing is that with your dog not doing that before and now doing it, so when the neighbours' dogs are barking, they're really in her territory and barking communicates so many different things. So it could be that they're alarm barking because they're not very socialised. So any time the neighbours' dogs hear any sort of noise, they think, oh, we have to alert everybody in the neighbourhood. And then your dog joins in and is almost obligated, because she's a dog, to pay notice to what these other dogs are doing. One of the uh, problems is that The neighbour's dogs probably don't have these things in their yard to provide environmental enrichment. Um, 
So I'm not suggesting you have to go out and buy them toys or anything, but if you're able to talk to the neighbours and say, oh, did you know when you're away the dogs are barking? Um, and I was talking to a vet on the radio and he said, you need some toys for them because that'll keep them calmer for a fair proportion of the day. But the problem with your dog is how do you control that barking? I've got about 30 seconds to let you know. What you need to do is to get her to do something else when this starts. Now, don't reprimand her, don't uh, praise her or anything. At the time she's barking, just get her to come to you and sit and then give her praise. So we're trying to change her behaviour over to something that you can reward her for that is not barking. Now, we're running out of time. Margaret, hold on the line because David's going to talk to you a little bit further, so please hold with us. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, David. Thank you also to Denny today. And that is our pet chat at 2NURFM 103.7.